your source for Big Ten Talk. It's off tackle Empire. Welcome to Off Tackle Empire. The official podcast of Off Tackle Empire, your source for everything Big Ten football. And we've got some breaking news. Well, some breaking speculation. The kind of thing where people toss out something and see what the reaction is. And they're obviously planning to do that thing. And it's just some things that are leaked. It's just rumors have it that this is what people are eyeing. And it's like uh, a lot of institutional momentum behind it. Just sauces floating around in the ether. Uh, and of course, by not making any official announcement, but just saying that you're exploring, then yeah, if, if the body politic rejects it like a civil war organ transplant, you can walk it back and say, well, what are you all mad about? We didn't actually decide to do that. That's not official. That's just uh, something we were talking about. And but, you can no. probably infer what we're talking about from this if you've been really plugged in. Uh, once again, I'm Steve Brown with Andrew Kuszewski, and we are talking about the 12-team college football playoff format. It's coming. We don't know exactly when. Again, nothing is official here, but it, they only send Bill Hancock out there to publicly reverse himself on something he said earlier, uh, if it's something they're planning on doing. And that, of course, was them having the 14 playoff to begin with. Um, and now you know, they most recently said, look, four is the perfect number. We're not even talking about other numbers. We would never consider another number. Uh, and now they've come out and said, actually, this other number is the one true number. So, well, I agree with them that 12 is the perfect number of teams that should be in the playoffs. I just disagree with them about the level of football at which is that that at which that is the case. The NFL saw fit to, to toss what I thought was the most perfect playoff format ever to get 14 teams in. Because well, you had it- to have the Bears in, so you had to have... Mitch Trubisky win the Nickelodeon MVP award being impotent in a loss. For that reason alone, the NFL tinkering with its format was entirely worth it. I I will go to my grave believing that. The only I'd like to go back now. The only thing that harms that as a maneuver is that they did not televise Mitch Trubisky receiving the MVP award in person. I picture like a little orange blimp statue like after a loss, like they make him go over to sidelines. Like, yeah, all right, Mitch, you got go talk to that 11 year old sideline correspondent. You're going to take that orange plastic blimp from him and you are going to pretend to be happy about it. Or uh, what consequences could you have possibly imposed on him at that point? He knew they were going to cut him. So. <laughs> and you know, this, this is all, um, I think the Nickelodeon thing was not just aimed at kids, but also aimed at a uh, zoomer humor and knowing how that goes, you think that 11-year-old kid wouldn't have just chosen an innocent-sounding question to actually eviscerate him? <laughs> I, I just, um, yeah, because it, it'd be something, it, it would have been like, is it hard to complete a 10-yard out or something? <laughs> just, yeah, it, it, it would have been great. Anyway. College football playoffs. So the major details are these. We'll present these in kind of neutral fashion. Then the way I thought we would talk about this is we'll kind of go through. I think there are some pros and cons. It says there are pros and cons to anything, but here are the major details of what we we would see on paper. 
Uh, the top four conference champions would get buys in the first round. And that's an important distinction because it means that if there's some year where the committee is like, um, well, Alabama's number one and LSU's number three and Florida's number four, uh, that doesn't mean that all three of them get buys. It's the top four conference champs that get buys, even if they're not ranked one, two, three, four. Um, the first round, those, so those teams get buys, and then the remaining four highest teams host games in the first round. The quarterfinals between the remaining field of eight are then played at bowl sites, as are the semifinals. One assumes that the New Year's Six bowl games just slide into those spots and rotate between being quarterfinal and semifinal games. And then they would obviously play the championship game at either Santa Clara or Jerry world every year. I'm sure. What um, I'd like to see is something like, you know, number six Cincinnati wins their conference championship game handily, but then like, I don't know, like a five loss unranked Northwestern uh, beats <laughs> like, I don't know, not Ohio state, but somebody for the big 10 title and goes from unranked to number five in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, we got to get that big home field advantage at Ryan Field, right? Uh, so, so that's the major overview of it right now. That's probably what it would end up looking like. But again, they could they could easily change some of these major aspects. But I think to make a twelve team field work, it's got to be something like that. Um, so you have automatic bids for the six highest ranked conference champions, and that's any conference in FBS. And then the other six sites are, or their six spots are at large to the remaining highest ranked teams. As far as I can tell under this current proposal, there's no cap on the number of teams one conference can send. Um, we'll get, to, I view that as a con because of course, prepare for the annual argument from a certain direction relative to where we are of, well, actually the SEC should just have five teams in the field because the fifth best SEC team is better than any other team. That kind of, like that's, Every year, prepare to hear it. Just kind of like steal yourself for that now. But anyway, here we'll run through a quick list of what I view as pros, and I wonder if you'll agree with these. First, uh, home site games kick ass in this sort of setting. That's they should have done it already with the semifinals. I'll agree. We should have written the New Year's Six Bowls out of this process altogether, but they didn't. And so, if you were to apply the home site games to those non-buy teams in the first round, just since the current format of the playoffs. So if you go back to just 2014, applying that format, unless I've seriously miscalculated here, would mean that we would have seen playoff games held in Happy Valley, East Lansing, Madison, Ann Arbor, and Columbus. Um, that's awesome. That kicks ass. And in a sport that otherwise does everything it can to kick sand in the face of the types of fans who actually go to the games, go to the stadiums, follow their teams religiously. This sport kicks sand in your face at every turn in the pursuit of the casual fans dollar. This is sort of a rare nod to the people who hold the game most dear and have made it a property that can be exploited in the first place. Well, as long as they root for the right teams. Well, yes, but rooting for the right team means rooting for the good team. And if your team's not good, that's your fault personally. Yep. Uh, now, again, I'm, I'm not saying that any of the movers or shakers made the home site decision because of the fans or to do it specifically for them. No, the decision so, was um, made for one reason and one reason only. The same reason anybody changes up their format for any sports championship in America in this day and age. 
It's to chase NFL revenue. It's to try to do what the NFL is doing so that you can try and whack off a chunk of their revenue so that you can try and emulate the things that they're doing to make all this money. And if you make your sport more like the NFL, then you'll get more money, which is what NASCAR was thinking, of course. Sure. And so they're, they're not making this decision to kick these games to the campuses because it makes people happy. They're doing it, I think, because they probably couldn't get good enough offers from that next tier of bowl games, you know, like the Citrus Bowl, um, the, uh, they change names every year, uh, the, the bowls below the New Year's Six Bowl. They probably couldn't get big enough media rights offers for those games to hold that first round. And so they're like, all right, well, we'll just have the teams hold them themselves. And then we can pretend it's about the fans and the student athletes being closer to their dorms so they can study and, um, and, and all that kind of stuff. It turns out though, that this decision means there is an incidental benefit to loyal fans, fans who are within driving distance of their stadiums will have realistic shots at seeing playoff games. Now, again, whether there's those tickets are actually accessible, I think will be more up to the schools and I kind of doubt it, but we'll, you know, we have yet to cross that bridge. Second pro from my perspective, and I think you and I are going to disagree on the extent of this. There is no question that expanding the field will democratize championship access, at least on paper. And so, whereas before, even the very best teams need a perfect or near perfect season to make a four team field. And you know, the other thing is if you have, if your team happens to have a one loss season and it's in a year where, Oh, look at that two you know, of two of Clemson, Ohio state, Oklahoma, and Ella and, you know, LSU or Bama are undefeated. And the other two have one loss. Oh, sorry. Your one loss team gets left out. Um, you don't need to worry. You don't need to have a perfect season to be sure of a spot. Most of the time, one loss is going to get you in. Uh, most seasons, there's probably going to be some two loss teams in there as well. The six champions thing means that you're sure to have at least one power five team in every year. And again, whether just making the field is a meaningful opportunity to compete for a championship or not, I kind of doubt because most of the time, when those teams run up against truly elite power five opponents, they get manhandled, but they'll have the chance to make their case. And maybe we don't have to listen to central Florida fans whine anymore. So yes, it democratizes access to the championship field. Yeah. However, whereas before Oklahoma state just needed to beat Iowa state to get a shot at, at uh, LSU. Right. And then they could beat them in that one game in 2011 if they could have done it, they're champions. Now it's like, no, now you've got to get through several teams with a, uh, you know, that are made up of mostly blue chippers. So it actually like it, it increases the odds that vastly increases the odds of you getting there, but almost assures that you cannot possibly win a championship without recruiting at an elite level. It, it, ah. it decreases the already very slim chances of this. Oh yeah, the new blue chip ratio article is out today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not disputing that the blue chip ratio is a thing or whatever, but you bring that up leads me into my next point, which is, and this is, I grant more of a hypothetical. This is just what I think. It could help close the gap between the most elite programs in the country and the field a little bit. Granted, by far the most likely outcome of this broadened field is that you will still have Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, a couple others continuing to run the sport without any real competition. Um, but 
part of the dominance of those teams. And you can you look, just look at the recruiting data, in particular, the stratification between those teams and even the other blue chip programs since the playoff came into being. The ones that were able to muscle their way into the playoff those first few years, get in there consistently, have been able to turn that into a level of recruiting success heretofore unheard of. If that, if, if regular access to the playoff is available to more programs, I think the inevitable result is you will see a little bit of a breakup of the, of what I refer to as the talent trust, where so many of the elite players go to a small handful of programs, which by the way, not terribly different than usual, but the last few years, the degree of that concentration has intensified. And I think you could see that reverse a little bit. Now, look, it could be that the bar just kind of moves down a little bit and that in five to seven years, you just see a handful of other teams like Oklahoma, Georgia, LSU, uh, maybe Auburn, or uh, who knows, a Penn State could sneak in there that might be able to break into the list of programs that hog all the hardware and the best players. But there's, I think there's at least a hypothetical window to break up the talent trust, um, especially when you consider that you may have more liberal NIL rights on the way that could let programs put together a more compelling offer to teams. Then look, if you want to be a first round pick and play for a championship, you got to go to one of three or four teams. Maybe we can break that up a little bit. I mean, I, I, I guess I'll believe it when I see it. Go ahead. Because, because Nick Saban's recruiting powerhouse was well underway before the college football playoff happened. It hasn't actually gotten significantly stronger from the, from the blue chip ratio metric uh, since the BCS era. Uh, Ohio State was, he- was spearheaded by Urban Meyer. Um, and of course you had Oregon kind of didn't really do anything with that momentum, nor did Michigan State. Washington's falling off now. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think one of the things that we could see um, just because of the, you know, the, the gaps forming between the you know the elite schools and everybody else is you could see the 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 weird incidents of like 28 point spreads in playoff games being covered with ease well yeah i think that at least those first few years you're going to see a lot more of those because there are going to be lower quality teams making it into the field and it's not like Ohio State Clemson or Alabama are going to take significant steps backwards at least not right at first and again I don't want to over, I don't want to overblow what I think the impact is going to be here. I think most likely there's just going to be a slight widening of the field of those teams that control everything, but at least there's a possibility, especially if you're a fan of a team, you know, like I said, like a Notre Dame or an Oklahoma, a team that's a step below those teams. You could tell yourself, look, if we're in that field every year, that's one less advantage that teams like Alabama and Clemson have over us. That's what I'm saying. I think this by this is a much less definite benefit than getting the home site games and getting broader access so that everybody at least gets a shot at the field. Um, On the other hand, Oklahoma has basically been there just about every year and wasn't able to close the gap at all in that time frame. They have they have not been there every year. What I think they've appeared has it been two or three times that they've appeared in the playoff. Three. I mean, I didn't say, I mean, (laughs) but they've been there by far the most out of any of the, what you would say playoff also rans. I guess, but you're still talking about within a pretty small subset of teams. I, no, I I don't think Oklahoma is 
viewed by, I think the way that they compete for recruits is by having this cutting edge offensive system. Uh, I don't think it's because of, I don't think that, that their, their level of playoff access has benefited them. I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know for sure one way or another, but I would disagree on that. So I'll flip now to what I would view as the cons of this arrangement, because again, nothing is perfect. First is that it does keep the New Year's Six games prominently involved in determining who the champion is. And with the exception of the Rose Bowl, those games are all played in sterile, out-of-reach NFL venues in the same handful of fixed locations. Uh, this, again, this had to be done because the current agreement between the NCAA and those bowls goes out to like, I think 2026 or something. So if they wanted to change it before then, they had to do something that was going to get those bulls on board, basically by offering them a better deal, which is that, hey, you're guaranteed to be at least a quarterfinal game every year, if not a semi, um, kind of better odds that, you know, better involvement, better prominence than you have with the current four-team setup. So the, the related kind of that is that if you are a fan of a non-elite program, you know, say you're a fan of a group of five program and your team has, you say you're Western Michigan a few years ago, you hire PJ Fleck. He, he's a home run hire. You know, you're not going to have him long, but while he's there, you have your once in a generation and not like, like, I don't mean this in terms of a recruiting generation. I mean like once in 25 plus years breakthrough. Um, you're you're undefeated. You're running the table. You when you're you're the best team in your conference, no problem. Well, now there's an extra layer of games in here. So you, the fan of that team, have to decide: Well, do I go to the conference championship game? Do do I go to our first round playoff game, or do I gamble that we're going to win that and save my trip for the semifinal? And then what do I do if we somehow win there? If we crash the national championship game, I already used my time off and my spare cash going to the semi. Like that's a mistake. So. Stretching these events out, making there more hurdles along the way, makes it more difficult for fans of those teams to meaningfully participate. Um, it has the effect of Super Bowlifying this whole process, which it kind of, it already is in the semifinal and final games for sure. These tickets are still ludicrously expensive. They're still in difficult destinations to get to, but adding another layer in there makes it even harder. For Joe and Jane alumnus who are not the, um, you know, the club ticket holders and the remodeled stadium suites, those people are going to be even farther away from having meaningful access to every step of this ride. So if you're not like having half of your income supplemented with all the rental properties you own, you're never going to go and see your team win a national title in person anymore. Let's just get that out of the way. No, unless, again, unless you make unless you make the trip to the title game your thing for the year or a couple years, and that's a risky thing to do here if your program's not there every season because there's no guaranteeing you're making it that far. If your team gets knocked out in the quarterfinal, don't you at least want to be there for that? So, making that choice is going to be difficult for fans. Um, but again, that's that's kind of been the way this sport's been going. So that's. I don't think that's really a negative of this expansion of the field in particular. That was a feature of the four-team playoff. It's now, if you of... didn't think, if for whatever reason you stubbornly clung to the belief that there were a lot of bowl games that still really, really, really deeply mattered, nah. even when the college football playoff was first announced, then this absolutely is the death knell for that because now there's basically going to be no bowl games with the uh, AP top 10 teams. No, there won't, there won't be. I mean, in the, 
in the right circumstances, if, if there's a bunch of upsets in conference championship games, then sure. You could have like a couple of the top 10 teams still be available for games like the citrus bowl, as we mentioned earlier, but that was already kind of an unusual thing in the new year's six era. So that's not I am, different, but that's, this makes it official and for sure. Yes. Yeah. So of course, you know, part of it is that I, I definitely is now confirmed that I got to live the rest of my life knowing that I passed up the last opportunity I'll ever have to watch Illinois in the Rose Bowl. I hate um, that you bring that up every time we talk about this. And I not only did the same with Michigan State, but I missed the very last actual Rose Bowl. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, we got the rest of our lives to think about that. Hopefully they're short. Um, and then the thing that worries me, not so much with this but like this, this, this could throw a little bit of cold water on anything reigniting it. But I think the pandemic may have caused a lot of, a lot of people to, you know, a lot of, a lot of like the people that run bowls, maybe a little more cautious throwing around their money. And I hope that that doesn't mean that we get contractions and don't have as many bowls because the fact of the matter is, I know that nobody's going to care about like my shitty little team making their little Detroit bowl in the grand context of college football. And nobody's going to respect them for that. But you know what? Like not everybody gets a lot of really fun moments and I have still not gotten to a bowl game in the two opportunities that I've had to get to one. So a lot of people enjoy bowl games and I hope that they don't go away. I have bad news for you on that front, though, Steve. I just took a look. I think it was CBS Sports had some preliminary bowl projections just the, earlier this week. And actually, the Fighting PJ Flex were projected to our good old Quick Lane Bowl here in Detroit. So you're going to have to wait another year to see Illinois play in Ford Field, I'm afraid. Oh, no. Well, I mean, I'm just, I was really hoping for a warm weather destination that's not right on New Year's or right at Christmas, unless, <laughs> well, no, that's not right at Christmas, really. And I interest you in a red box bowl. <laughs> you can fly out on Christmas day, drive two and a half hours or whatever it is away from San Francisco. <laughs> and watch. Uh, we were in that. Um, okay. So another negative of this format is that it absolutely no question, no doubt forever cheapens the regular season. This again is inevitable. Uh, the NFL is making the same dumb mistake as their greedy owners pushed and pushed and pushed. And Hey, now we've got a 17 game regular season, just a matter of time before they push for 18. Eventually they'll push for 20. And what's the result of that? If I'm a devoted fan of an NFL team, I'm not. Um, Does it really matter the same way if I miss a couple of games here or there because well, there's 19 others. Um, I, I don't know. I think the powers that be in these sports leagues, see the amount of money that comes in from media deals. And they really do think, okay, more means more always. If we just have more games, we will always and forever get more money for them. I I don't think it's going to last forever, man. I think there's going to come a point where baseball has 162 games and broadcast and, you know, media companies start telling them, look, there's no market for this. Nobody's watching half of these games. You got too much product. I watering it down this way is a terrible mistake to me. And just from the perspective of tradition and value of these games, who, who gives a crap about the game, about Ohio State, Michigan over Thanksgiving weekend, especially if bo- they're both good? Yeah, especially look at this. no one will care then because they're let's, both. Let's pretend player. that Michigan's not what it is right now. Let's pretend it's 2006 and yeah. this is the format. Yeah. Who cares? 
about the result of that game when you you're know jockeying for position. And again, it's like, you know, who cares that uh, Georgia won the 2017 SEC championship? Uh, now even conference championships are fairly meaningless. Will you have OSU deploying some load management in their rivalry games now? Yeah, in, in, rivalry, in rivalry games and conference championship games. I mean, we're probably a few years away from that, but honestly, you could see it. Like, you could, couldn't you see it? <laughs> Who cares about winning the Iron Bowl if Auburn and Alabama are both in the top 10? You're going to the playoff. If you have a couple of starters who are nursing minor injuries, you know, hey, now you've got to make it through, unless you're in the top four, you've got to make it through a couple, through three pro season games to win the title. So I, I think you would see teams start to look at the end of the regular season a little bit differently. Um, to say nothing of how the fans will view it if you've now got teams with two losses getting into the field. Um, last thing, substantively, as we mentioned earlier, there's no apparent limit on participants from a single conference. So again, get, get used to the annual conversation of, you know, Paul Feinbaum arguing, yes, uh, Mississippi State, the fourth best team in the SEC West should be in the playoff. Like, yeah, you're going to have to listen to that. Uh, well, I say you're going to have to listen to it. You always always have the option to ignore that. I do it often. I can't recommend it heartily enough. Well, what's interesting is that this might actually broaden the number of teams that they talk about to more than just four or so, four to five, because now suddenly the Pac-12 champion matters. It will suddenly broaden the conversation to at least 12. No question about that. <laughs> they just they just move. They'll probably just move the bar down. Because like, you can't expect national media to get more nuanced or to do more work. They're just going to look at, all right, well, how many teams do we actually have to talk about? Uh, but yeah, in the context of there being, you know, six automatic bids, any number of teams could win those, depending on how the rankings play out. Suddenly the Sunbelt Championship could be relevant. Suddenly the MAC Championship could be relevant in a given year. Um, and, you know, what about the fate of independence? Since there's strong preference here for conference champions, does that force Notre Dame to put a ring on it with the ACC. What does BYU do? What about the service academies? There's going to be a Notre Dame clause in this thing. You know, there's going to be rules spelled out for Notre Dame. When they get close. Well, I I believe I should have looked it up, but um, Jack Swarbrick had something really whiny to say about it, which makes me think that actually at the moment there might not be, that doesn't mean that they won't. That's if there's going to be a major change, it will probably be something to just say, Oh, and by the way, Notre Dame's guaranteed at least one birth every five years. Sorry, guys, we're special. I like that the one bit of college football tradition that we just can't throw away, you know, all, all of the shit that, that we all like is, is going out the yes. ways is yeah. going out by the wayside. And the one thing that we can't quite move on from is this idea that Notre Dame is really, really super special. And the only thing that really matters yeah. and matters more than all the conferences Forget about playing high-profile out-of-conference games. Forget about traditional geographically-based conferences with like-minded institutions. Um, forget about all that. Yeah, forget about not playing games at 9 a.m. on the West Coast. Um, yeah, yeah, holy shit. I still can't believe they're literally still doing that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, again, but that's a newer thing in the interest of the TV broadcast. So, yeah, never mind all that stuff. Got to be nice to special Catholic place. Yeah, I just, um, all right. Not to mention the Friday night games because screw your high school football team. Oh yeah, Friday night. How about Thursday night games? (laughs) Thanks, Louisville, by the way. I blame Louisville. 
So anyway, uh, all in all, I mean, the fact is, I don't know that my opinion matters this much because I'm not the target audience, uh, nor are you really. The target audience for this is NFL fans, the casual fan, the kind of guy that tunes into March Madness because, oh man, you know, really want to see a big upset and then a dominant team dominate. Boy, I sure like when a dominant team dominates. I don't know people like that, but apparently they're everywhere uh, and also degenerate gamblers. So these people are all the target audience for this. I'm not. Um, in fact, like in my case specifically, I- I'm, I'm like, I'm the, I'm the fan of the kind of team that's holding Ohio States of the world back. And really the power brokers in this sport would rather I don't exist. My existence is an inconvenient truth to them. And there's millions of us. So I've just got to wait a few decades and we'll probably be able to play each other again. The, the, the way that you phrase that powerfully reminded me of Tobias Funke and his crowd of never nudes. There are dozens there are of dozens us. There are dozens of us. <laughs> so what's your overall take on this? I mean, again, I kind of don't know if I, I care. It doesn't really move the needle for me. But <laughs> Well, look, I, I understand that unless and until... I actually see real success from Mel Tucker, Michigan State, that this is this is all an academic exercise. But I'm thinking back to how not so long ago, there was a time period where five out of six years, Michigan State would have been in the playoff field if this format had been in place. And that's not to say that we would have won or even made a final in any of those years. Maybe, maybe 2013, we might have made it to the title game. But it just, I mean, I don't know that Michigan State's ceiling is much higher than any of those teams. So lowering the bar in such a way that my program might realistically be able to play for a national title in my lifetime, yeah, I'm for it. Um, it's not without a cost. I mean, it, it, like I said, it waters down the regular season for sure. I don't, I don't know what the future of a conference championship game is in this format, for example, because your team, you've got 12 regular season games you could now have three postseason games and in a conference title game, te- these teams are now playing NFL schedules uh, over really only a little bit longer than an NFL season, I, not even as long as an NFL season. So I think there's going to be some pushback at some point on, on continuing to expand the season, but overall it gives my, it, as a fan of the sport, it gives my team a much more realistic shot to participate in the national title chase than it would in a 14 field. There was, it it was vanishingly unlikely, especially being stuck in a division with Ohio state that MSU was going to make it anytime soon if things remained as they are now. So all that being said, I, yeah, like I said, there's no perfect system and I understand this comes with costs, but I also think that expanding the playoff field was inevitable. I think this is preferable to eight because if you do that, you're probably just guaranteeing the five conference champions what you probably throw in a guaranteed um, group of five rep in there. And then you've got two wild cards and one of those goes to the SEC every year. So what really would have been any different in an 18 field? 12, I think, makes it much more likely that the second best team in every conference is going to be there more often than not. So I think that's a that's a realistic goal for my program to shoot at. So I'm on I'm on board. Well, if Illinois is going to make a run, I hope they can do it after this playoff format goes into place, but before the Big Ten adds Texas and Oklahoma to the West, um, <laughs> which which is going to happen. Mark my words. But but realistically, the 
best by Bill Connolly's SP plus numbers, the best Illinois team in my lifetime went seven and five and lost at home to Jim Coletto Purdue. So uh, I'll, I'll see y'all in Detroit. I'm just looking forward to the BTN's programming on big 10 legend, Ricky Williams. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas city, go Kevin or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So continuing in the theme of off-season business, we're going to bring up a slightly less pleasant topic. And I don't know, Real, I think we are of similar minds on this. I think most people who listen to us at this point are probably also of a similar mind, but it's certainly an ongoing story here in Detroit where we both live. I think it's a story that's picked up a little bit more national prominence recently. Not that it's news because it's been going on for a couple of years now, but it's, it's coming to the national spotlight, I think. And it, it hasn't really quieted down. Things have continued to roll out in the papers for sure. So I think we would be remiss if we didn't address Robert Anderson and Bo Schembechler. I think the best way to start this, let me take a drink here. Well, yeah, is with a quick overview for anybody who's lucky enough to have not heard about this. Uh, Dr. Robert <laughs> Anderson was a doctor employed by the University of Michigan from 1966 to 2003 in various capacities, directing the health system of the university from 1968 to 1980. was then reassigned to the athletic department where he remained active until 1999. And of course, you know, primarily known for being the football team doctor. Yeah, he remained, I believe he remained on faculty technically until his death in 2003, but from what I can tell, he was really not terribly active after 99 or so. Point is, a football team and university uh, institution for decades. And so per a report by an outside law firm commissioned by the university, uh, school officials were notified by 1975 at the absolute latest that Dr. Anderson's treatment frequently included inappropriate sexual contact to put it extremely mildly. And we probably should have included a trigger warning at the beginning of this, but in the interest of avoiding any such reactions further, I, I, I don't think there's no need to go into it. it. It's essentially things that you could not possibly come up with a medical context for. No, it's, ex, it's extremely graphic reports of sexual abuse. And we're talking about, again, a period of 37 years where he was in one capacity or another involved with the university, um, long stretches of those with the athletic department and the football team in particular. Anderson died in 2003, currently um, I think somewhere between eight and 900 survivors of his abuse are involved in confidential mediation with the University of Michigan, um, settling those claims uh, this story is every bit as bad and arguably larger in scale than the horrible things we have seen from Michigan State, from Penn State, from Ohio State, from USC. Uh, I would like to point out that of those, only Ohio State had somebody who covered it up currently serving in Congress. Yeah, which is just the just the funnest part of, of all these little stories. So what does all this have to do with our little corner of the world? So the modern identity of Michigan football for 
the 13 fan bases who are not part of it is built upon the teachings and persona of Bo Schembechler, a former coach in athletic department. And that's it's his sayings and his personality and his approach are woven into the mortar of the football building, which bears his name, by the way, it's Schembechler Hall is where the football program is established. His statue is outside of it. Those have become very hot button lightning rod topics in this, whether that should remain the case after you could probably see where this is going, but when, to give you an idea of what an institution this is, like my wife is not very aware of college football. And I just described him to her as, Oh, you always see the guy he dresses in dark. He dressed in, in, you know, big dark glasses, a sweatshirt and khakis and the, the blue hat with the block M on it. And he's usually yelling at folks. Um, you definitely seen pictures of the guy, especially in sports memorabilia stores. The hot item when Harbaugh was first hired was this picture of Bo Schembechler yelling at him when he was a player. Um, very much revered. Would not be completely unfair to say that 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 uh, Michigan football as a fandom has had a quasi-religious thing when you consider all of the Bo Schembechler mantras that are still, you know, big parts of the you know they're they're pretty much merchandised by. By Michigan athletics at this yeah, point, those who stay will be champions. Uh, the team, the team, the team, those are those sayings. Um, he was the football coach there from 1969 to 89, and then he served as the athletic director from 88 to 90. Um, and we have a lot of fun pointing out how he never actually won a national title there, based on how he's lionized around here. You would assume he'd won 10. Um, he did also go five and 12 in bowl games, another point of haha for all the rest of us. But there's no question he he won a whole lot of games in his time as a coach. Yes, none of this is as important as to say that he's the reason that people still think of Michigan as an absolute college football blue blood. Because if you were if you were really, really good national title contention in the 70s, then you're a blue blood today. Um, And if you're over 40 years old, then he's the reason you think of Michigan as being good. If you're under 40 now, that's why we probably why you think of Michigan differently. So in any case, that's, those are the players here. Um, Again, Anderson died in 2003. Schembechler died in 2006. In Schembechler's time as coach, there is really no longer any dispute that many of his players were abused by Dr. Anderson. What has become clear in recent days because of the direct firsthand statements of these guys who have now put their names to these statements is that an unclear but greater than zero number of those players told Schembechler about it and that despite his absolutely despotic power within the athletic department and the university, Schembechler did nothing about it. Uh, Remember, Anderson was not ousted, was not exposed. None of this came to light publicly until long after his death. And he outlasted Bo in an official capacity at the university by almost a decade. There's a lot of other details to this story. It would take us hours to tell the whole thing and do it justice, but that's a 10,000 foot view. Again, currently, the reason this is all coming to a head is that the university, a couple of years ago, these reports became public and now hundreds of people have come forth and confirmed that they too are survivors of this abuse by, by Anderson and prompted in part by some comments made by Jim Harbaugh a few weeks ago along the lines that the bow he knew would not have allowed this kind of thing to go by. You then had people come forward, identify themselves and say, 
No, I definitely told him and he didn't do anything. As a matter of fact, some of the report, a report that I saw uh, indicated that it was well enough known around the staff that you would have position coaches threaten players with the punishment of sending them to Dr. Anderson for a physical as yeah, a, uh, as a disciplinary reports. measure. Yeah. And, and other reports again, that there, there were all kinds of jokes about, Oh, well, you've been to see Dr. Anderson or you got Anderson, that, that kind of thing. Um, that it was just a thing that everybody accepted and didn't talk very much about. And, and for anyone to have the slightest understanding of the way any college football program runs, let alone both Schembechler's and believe that assistant coaches are joking about it. It's an open secret in the locker room, but somehow Schembechler was unaware of all of it. That is a disconnect from reality that cannot be ignored. It is very unfortunate. And again, we mentioned Harbaugh. He made his comments a few weeks ago. He's been very quiet since then. And it's, it's easy to understand why, because Schembechler is a man with whom he had a deep and personal relationship. And it's the same thing for all the sports media figures like Mitch Album um, and Jim Branstadter, who's the radio voice of Michigan football, and came out and more aggressively said, basically, I don't believe this. I don't believe any of it. Bo would not have done this. I don't believe that any of this is true. That's the voice of Michigan football coming out and saying that during mediation that's going to cost the university probably a billion dollars um, um bo schembechler's son by the way uh came out about a week after jim harbaugh uh, made his comments defending uh schembechler to say that he had in fact been a victim and he had told his father bo schembechler who had done nothing now this is of course obviously bo schembechler probably did not want this whole thing going on but more than anything else what he didn't want was to rock the was for anything to rock the boat. He had his thing set up and it was going well and he was in control of it and that was all that anybody needed to know. And the, you know, it was more driven by, in my opinion, the desire to not have the boat rocked, which is, uh, which on its face does not seem as evil, but in reality causes a lot more really bad things to continue happening to people than so, actual evil malicious intentions. Yeah, and you know. Again, the story has picked up a lot of steam recently. I was, I was more of a mind to just let it go because what really would we say in the context of all the attention now being paid to it that would be interesting or innovative? But now that there's been this pushback by this legion of bull loyalists, I feel that it has to be addressed. The fact that these people have come out to defend Schembechler for what is really indefensible conduct is tragically unsurprising for a couple of reasons. Because first of all, you see this kind of pushback and reaction in all these other cases. You saw it certainly with Paterno at Penn State, because if, if you want a comparison, that's really what Bo Schembechler was. He was just Paterno a little bit earlier. Um, and you, you saw similar pushback in the Michigan State and the Ohio State cases. Um, there's still a resistance to believe that this kind of thing would have happened, especially that it would have happened on the watch of such a legendary figure. And so there, there's investment by a lot of these people making these comments in the legacy of Bo Schembechler, both from a direct personal and financial statement, because look, again, the Michigan brand is built on this guy. And then also on a personal level, again, with Harbaugh, with Brandstatter, with these media guys, they all feel that they knew Bo Schembechler deeply, personally, and intimately, and that he could have been capable of such a massive systemic and long-standing 
failure, abdication of responsibility for the men under his care is inconsistent with what they thought of them, of, of him. And it forces you, if you're one of these guys who lionizes Bo, to look in the mirror and say, what else am I wrong about? And the fact of the matter is that after a lot of horrifying things are done by people or enabled by people, many people close to them are interviewed and said, well, that's simply not the person they knew. This person they knew wouldn't do that, yet they did. I mean, would you have believed the things about Bill Cosby before all the accusers came, you know, came public? Uh, America's dad. The fact is we're living in a, in a time, uh, and we were talking before the show about, about a bit of a generational divide where you know, folks maybe older than 40 have a bit of a harder time wrapping their heads around this, but for you know, those who've spent most of their lives in the, the post 9-11 era, especially the post 2008 era, um, the, the idea that you should just in, you know, tr- implicitly trust institutions that hold a lot of power doesn't have a lot of sway to, to you know, the younger, the currently dominant uh, generation of the, uh, what you might call the independent college football blog scene. And for those, you know, for Michigan fans, the vast majority of the Michigan fans that I've actually interacted with, and that's to say Michigan fans, not, you know, people affiliated with the university or that have any sort of, you know, very prominent voice. Uh, there's a pretty even consensus on that one, this happened, two, Schembechler was awful for it, and three, uh, the university needs to completely cut ties with, uh, with that man's ghost. Yeah, and that's, that's really where this story goes from a sports perspective. I mean, the court case goes on, um, but I think Michigan fans have a choice. You can follow the Jim Brandstatters of the world and stake your personal worth to trying to put words in the mouth of a man who's been dead for 15 years, trying to decide for yourself what he knew and when, or you can choose to believe the only accounts we're going to have, because again, Anderson and Bo are both dead. You can choose to believe the accounts of the hundreds of people who after decades of suppressed trauma have opted to seek justice, have opted to tell their stories. And you cannot let your fond feelings for the block M and the banner over the tunnel and this stodgy old despot who it turns out none of us really knew the way we thought we did. You, you can prevent those things from clouding your ability to confront the truth and demand that right be done. And in one sense, that's going to happen whether you want it to or not, because again, the university is going to settle for a lot of money with the survivors of this abuse. But whether you ever actually heal and move on from this depends on whether you're willing to move on from him because there's no responsible argument to have anymore about what he knew and what he failed to do. And so we're yeah. behind, we're behind MGO blog all the way. They've been uh, very decisive in their stance and we encourage any Michigan fans who feel the same way to speak up against these people like Brandstatter that, that are really putting a lot of words in the mouths of Michigan fans and being poor representatives for you. And none of this is to say that you have to burn your Michigan gear or stop following the team, but you have to redefine what that fandom means because it can't be those who stay will be champions anymore. And if you bought Bo's book, Bonfire might be a good place for it. Well, and then of course it leaves you with the, the uncomfortable fact that you have a coach who 
has been cosplaying as Bo Schembechler for his entire tenure here. And it just seems like he's caught in a very, very tough situation to continue yeah. to be who he is. That's the, that's the unclosed loop here is how does Harbaugh react to this? Um, this is not to say, by the way, that if he comes out in the same, <laughs> I was going to say uniform, it's really, it really is more of a costume. Um, that if he comes out dressed like Bo again, that he should be fired for that. That's preposterous. Yeah, th- this isn't going to be yet another, you know, Jim Harbaugh hot seat thing, but it does leave him in a strange place when you consider his whole identity is built around being the Bo Schembechler quarterback of one of the best Bo Schembechler teams and bringing, channeling all the Bo Schembechler stuff and and smashing a Buckeye on Bo Schembechler's grave and all of that. His His identity is so in an even not just from a marketing perspective, but I think in his own head, his identity is so tied to this man that I don't know how he moves forward. Yeah, it, it's certainly going to be an interesting program to watch for more reasons than usual. Um, but anyway, that I think concludes I don't know, again, I don't know that either of us have any especially profound thoughts to offer on that, but given that this is a story which has continued to have some legs, we felt we would be... Uh, derelict of our duty if we didn't comment on it in some well i guess i do have one more thing to say and that's if you think that it couldn't happen to your school that it couldn't then you are wrong it can happen absolutely anywhere that people hold a lot of power um without accountability which is to say just about any university that exists in this country unfortunately yeah and of course the reason that it's happened at very successful programs is because those people have accumulated the most power while you know eliminating uh, accountability if you know habitually bad football programs just don't give people that much power because they don't take it but that's that's the downside of the power that you can build up um, by making a name as a legendary coach in this sport is you have to use it responsibly and you can't really know um, you can't really know what goes on behind closed doors so if these things come out in the future, I just hope that we are all prepared to look at them uncritically. Your source for big gun talk, it's off tackle empire.